Welcome to Half Finished to Done, a podcast for passionate business owners like you who are ready to stop procrastinating and start finishing all of your half-done projects. I'm your host, Christina, and I'm looking forward to helping you finish your projects in a calm, sustainable way using a simple, repeatable process. All along the way, we'll be working through the mental, emotional, and logistical obstacles that are standing between you and extraordinary projects. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm super excited to talk with my guest, Becca. Becca, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. I am a success coach who specializes in creatives. And what I do, I guess I would say most of my time in the day is spent one-on-one with authors primarily and writers of all kinds, talking about what makes them successful. If they're not having success, why are they not having it? And how do we develop plans to get them to the success that they want to have? Love it. We do very similar work. So we actually got connected through somebody you work with, one of my best friends who is an author. So we are for sure on the same page about a lot of things. Before we go into the topic we're really interested in talking about today, can you just give a super brief overview of what it means that you're a Gallup's certified strength coach? What does that mean? The strengths is a specific program, but it's easiest to call it a personality metric, even though it's not really about personality. It's about success patterns. And I always try to explain it like if you've ever seen criminal minds and profiling, the way that like the profilers can tell what kind of serial killer it is by just like looking at the body. That's how we work with writers, not in like, how did you kill this person or this book, but more like the how is the way that we're wired similarly important to the way that we are successful. So the strengths themselves are success patterns that have been documented and researched over the last 60 years. Donald Clifton was the originator of them, but they have all different names. There's 34 of them and you have a top five. Like what are the five things we can expect consistent near-perfect performance from you in? And then we utilize that mix of strengths to talk about how you as an individual are going to be successful, aligned to success or not sometimes in your writing career. Okay. I love it. I've done Strengths Finder actually like three times over the past probably decade and a half. And my answers do change, but there is some consistency. And I love that you use that analogy. I'm like, everyone who's a true crime fan probably just perked up that, that criminal profiling, but for yourself. So that's fantastic. What are your top five strengths? Just so we have a little bit of context for this conversation. So I have input, which is taking all the information in, connectedness, seeing how people are connected to each other, the strategic thinking, and then individualization, which is being able to tell how people are uniquely different from each other and appreciating that. And then significance, which is the desire to see my work have an impact. So you might say that you're in the perfect career being a one-on-one success coach. I'm like hearing your strengths. I'm like, well, duh. (laughs) Well, duh, because it's like a systems. And so it's always working on the things that produce the behaviors that we don't like about what we're doing, connecting the strategic, and then the individualization significance, like you are so unique, you're unique in six and a half million people statistically. And then beyond that, of course, given context and gender and age and all those things were unique to like 1.8 trillion or something like that. I can't remember what the statistics was massively unique. But also the patterns that we share are really important because they're predictive, especially when it comes to success. And so it's also not a surprise that as a high significance, that I would be really, really into making a program that creates a really big crater. And just in terms of like my approach to business ownership is different than some people, because I really believe that the way we create products for our clients or audience has to be different if we are different, right? Like if I have a different personality, I can't just take anybody's advice. I have to look at like, how am I specifically going to be successful in my, like, again, craftsmanship is the word that we use a lot, like in the way that I create my programs. 
So I think that's a really interesting conversation as a creator, right, is making sure your program can be customized to different people. But I also think this is really helpful for our clients because our clients also have a role in taking the course content or the process, the method, and putting it through their own lens and being like, does this work for me? And I would say that some of my clients who have the most success are like, hey, this thing that you recommend doing, try to hate it, don't want to do it. And they become even more confident in themselves because they reject parts of my process. I call it outsmarting the process. And I think often we go into other people's programs or other people's courses and coaching and we're like, I have to do every single thing they say and I'm going to feel miserable when I fail at that. And so taking back that ownership. And blame myself. Yes, right. Blame myself or blame the other person. I'll say my top five strengths, my latest five strengths, (laughs) which again has changed over the years. My number one is command. Do you have, you probably have a better definition than I do. How do you define command? So command, seek clarity. If no one is taking charge in a situation, a command will take charge. They, when they speak, they expect to be listened to and they have something specific to say. But if someone else is in charge, they let them be in charge. That's exactly my experience. I'm like, there's a reason I run a group program and I'm like, y'all, we're doing this. (laughs) But there's plenty of situations where I can sit back and be like, yeah, it's not my expertise. Somebody else take the lead. So I love that. So command strategic. So I have strategic too. Mm -hmm. This is probably why we drive and connect. (laughs) The anticipation, right? Like the creative anticipation, especially where strategic is always looking for multiple paths to the right destination. Usually strategics are also very best obsessed? Like what is the best possible path that I can take to get to this particular success? And they're willing to always consider other possibilities than what we have assumed would be possible in order to find that place, that path that has no roadblocks on it. Okay. I love that. And like, I think anyone who's gone through my program can totally attest to that is like, there's no problem that doesn't have a solution in my mind and not one solution, 20 solutions which is also paired with one of my other strengths is ideation. So I'm like there, I have already, if you've presented a problem, by the time you've gotten it out of your mouth, I've thought of 10 solutions every single time. I think it's actually helpful for people to know because I think if you don't have ideation super high, then you're going to compare yourself to someone who does and be like, why do they have 10 ideas? And I don't have any, but I love this idea of it's because that's maybe not one of your top strengths. Right. And ideation is such a proliferator that a lot of ideation people are okay if you don't take the idea that I give you, I have more just in terms of like people who have a lower ideation are a little more precious with their ideas because it takes so much to generate one. Whereas really high ideation people were always joking. Like we have a number one ideation coach and he has a thousand ideas before breakfast. It's like, of course he can give you 10 of them. Like, because he'll just have a thousand more before lunch. It'll be fine. Oh my gosh, that is my life experience in a nutshell. That's fantastic. I love that. And and I think for people listening, looking at if you do the strengths finder test, where does your ideation fall? So for example, like you said, if your ideation is low, then you might be really attached to one specific project. And then my guess is you end up putting a lot of pressure on that one project because you're like, this one has to work or else. So that's interesting to think about. I also think of the strategic as the I just always see patterns, right? So if I work with 10 people, I'm always thinking about what are the patterns that are emerging here? Then from there, I have activator. So I take action. I have an idea, put it into action. And your best friend has the strength as well. So we sort of joke all the time that activator is ready, fire, aim. Like before I've aimed, I've already taken action on the thing, which is a very catalyzer feel, right? I'm okay being the person who's going to push us to take action in something. A lot of activators are very action step oriented, et cetera, which is, you know, tracks. Like, again, we've talked enough that I feel like I see all of these in you for sure. Yeah. I always think about what it must be like to be you and to just go through the world and just always be thinking of like, I do. I'm sure. I'm sure I do it too. (laughs) Yeah. It's very crazy too, because crazy making, I mean, because I will see people's behaviors in like airports and restaurants and everywhere. And I do feel like a profiler sometimes where I'm just always being like, oh, I could help you a little bit with this, buddy. If you just like, let me translate some of this into a different language for you. I always think of how that profiler must feel like I'm surrounded by serial killers all the time. And I'm just looking for the behavior patterns 
that's very much my life. Yes. That's so good. I saw this TikTok recently that was like, how does your job ruined life for you in like a funny way? And I was like, what my newest problem is when I'm reading fiction books, I see every time someone procrastinates and I see the thought that's creating their procrastination. And I'm like, if I could just coach them. And then I'm at Christina, they're fictional characters. They don't need your coaching, but it is so hard to unsee and it ruins my nightly reading. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that would definitely be the case. Okay. So my last one then is, and this also makes sense is learner. So it's just like, I love to go and like, I take a topic, I go super deep on it. And I've had to work with that because what often happens for me is I go super deep for like two to three years and then I'm over it. So I'm working on channeling all of that, but that one's really interesting as well. Well, and I would say actually for learners, we see that be a benefit in terms of we actually see it be a benefit to their business that they don't stay in one lane for very long. Because I do think it's also, especially with authors, there is this weird expectation we have that you have to do the same thing all the time in order to maintain success. But the way that learners maintain success is actually by challenging themselves to learn something new, getting new energy. So like if you find yourself in a slump or you feel like there's nothing happening, Give an ideation learner, especially that pair of their new and different strengths, I would say you probably need to find something new to learn about to generate the energy in order to get that adaptation going right where that activator can move you in, in a different direction. And all learner writers, we say you're going to write in different genres. Your whole career is not going to be one thing. And so embracing that side of yourself usually looks like the freedom to iterate and the freedom to adapt, as opposed to, like I said, that expectation that somehow I have to be Stephen King and only write in one genre for the rest of my life. Like, no, there are plenty of successful people who only do one genre every year, you know, or two years, and they're still making money. So what would the flip side of that be? Like, who would be the person? What strengths would make you thrive in just one genre? So usually it's less of a strengths thing. I mean, there are definitely like high discipline, high focus together. Having a lower learner would make that a lot easier and a lower ideation or lower individualization because those are kind of the new and different style strength. But having a high significance could shortcut that if you had a breakout. Like if you had just crazy success and you're like, I want to keep this significance for forever you might be able to get yourself to stay in one lane for a while. But again, if you have a learner, you're always going to have to be iterating on some level because that depth that you get to does have a limit. Once you feel like you've learned everything that you possibly can learn from that place, you do have to move on to something else. You'll get stagnant otherwise. So, But yeah, usually we see the when strengths are low, this is what happens or when, like I said, like a discipline focus combo might create more of that factory approach. Like I'm just going to stay in my lane and do this thing. That's really helpful. Cause I'm like, I'm sure we have people like that. I would say most of the people I work with tend to be on the other side, like more similar to me of like the million ideas, super active brain, the, the learner and all of that. But I know we have, we have a wide spectrum. I've also I don't know if this has a strengths-based explanation, but one of the things I've talked about with one of my other best friends is that we are sprinters. So we sprint and we rest, but her husband, he's a marathoner. So he is consistent and he's disciplined and he's like even keeled and we're not like that. And so that has been massive for me is leaning into that sprinting and resting. And I know that so many people I talk to have that tendency, but they're beating themselves up and they're explaining it as like, well, I start and then I stall out. And I'm like, no, you just sprint and rest. What if you just described it in a better way? What's your take on that? Yeah, we have a similar, we call it phoenixing, where like you work really, really hard and then you burn out of the energy and then you're required to rest. Like your body almost requires that because you're burning so hot because binge writing is often something that phoenixes do and binge writing gets a really bad name in what you're calling marathon or what we call factory circles, where it's like you're just consistently producing, consistently producing. And because authors often should all over themselves, most of us do, humans do, they're always like, well, I should be different. Like I should be this factory production. And and we have to really turn their mind around 
because that embracing, like we don't see phoenixes do well trying to be factories. Like if they try to change their personality and do the factory way, we don't actually see them benefiting from that. We usually see their book suffering. And so there is an alignment to that, which is hard for people to internalize because the productivity industrial complex wants us to believe that there's one way to be productive. And there's nothing that bugs me more, again, as a success coach or as a nonfiction author than the whole, like, you have to be this way, you have to do this thing. That is just not true. There's so many paths to success. And there's a higher likelihood that the way you naturally want to do it is better for you than whatever book you're reading is telling you is good for you. And there just aren't enough people talking about that yet. There will be. It's definitely the new wave that's coming up right now, but there aren't enough people talking about it. What strikes me too as you're talking is not only do you end up getting a worse work product, usually when you're trying to fit a mold, you feel like shit along the way. So I'm like, kind of a double whammy. And it's funny because most people don't ever, and again, we use the phrase often, question the premise, right? It's like, when you hear someone give you advice, do you accept the advice because you assume that because they sound certain, they're correct? Or do you understand that certainty and correctness are on an inverse ratio and they may not relate to each other at all? And so therefore, you question the premise of everything that you are told, because it's likely that most of what you hear is not a good fit for you. Even if you hear it and think, oh my gosh, I would love to do that, or I want that, or I want that success. Well, right, because the person is really certain that you're going to have the success you want if you do that thing, but they are wrong. Like They don't know you. And that's the difference, right? Is they know themselves. They know how they were successful. They know how to tell you their story, but they don't usually know enough people to know that you are likely different from them and what worked for them won't work for you. And the tagline for our podcast is like, anyone can tell you what worked for them and they can say it might not work for you, but they can't tell you why. I can tell you why, because that why is the key difference maker in literally every single problem that people have. They just they're holding themselves to unrealistic expectations. I feel like I just got a, a sermon in the best way possible. Right. And I know you agree with it, right? So I'm <laughs> like, do. you I'm get like, it. Yes. Like your strategic gets it. You see, you see the evidence of it. So your strategic understands, yeah, this isn't going to work for everybody. Whatever the, the thing you hear, right? It's like, yeah, that's not going to work for everybody. So I'm really curious when you say that, why, like I can tell you why it's not going to work for you. Are you alluding to strengths with that? Some of it is strengths because some of it is just like you have a behavior pattern that makes you do that. So like, for instance, with the marathoner versus sprinter example, almost all activators would be considered to be sprinters in that way because they get the most energy at the beginnings of projects, that action, right? Like when you take action, you get energy. But there are also other either personality traits or brain science reasons why things happen. People come to me and ask me why they're not having the success that they want. We do look first at their personality stuff in case there's an answer there. But sometimes the answer is your system is set up to function differently than you would like for it to. You think you believe something that's true that you don't actually believe in your actions. You are not aware of how the internet works or how Facebook is set up to steal attention. You are not aware of how your biology functions or your neurobiology functions. So the why part is really complicated because for every single person, the whys might be neurobio environment and personality, but there are going to be different reasons for each person. And so, but yeah, some of it is strengths for sure. Definitely. That's the first place we go because it's the most accurate psychometric on the market right now. And not that there can't ever be another one, but there isn't another one. I've looked. (laughs) My number one input If it's out there, I've seen it. It's not as accurate, no matter what you think. Anyway, not you personally, but the listeners. Because everybody's like, oh, but have you heard of 
disc. I'm like, God, yes. Like I've heard of everything literally that there is because that's my number one input. But so because Strengths is the most accurate that we've found to work, we always go there first. But so often Strengths is not the reason because even if you had, like, let's just take input as an example, not every input will struggle with not being able to turn off the internet because some of us have other strengths that compensate for that. Like my significance will be like, time to shut everything down. We've got work to do and it'll just do it. But if you have susceptibility to distraction or if you're externally motivated, then all of a sudden that changes everything because your brain chemistry is making you make different decisions with that input. So then we need to go all the way back to your biology is making this decision for you. Are you sure you want that to happen? Because you're doing it unconsciously and you don't want it. You don't want the outcome. So let's maybe change that input. And so sometimes it's very, very like, do you know about distractibility? Like, do you know about external motivation? Those kinds of things. That's really powerful. I keep thinking about the just understanding social media, right? And understanding the algorithms and how many people are like, I have personally failed myself because I am still scrolling when I don't want to be versus being like, okay, like my thought is always, they literally designed it. And you'll hear any technologist who comes out of a tech company is like, yep, that was our job. Make it as addicting as possible. And there's so many mechanisms for doing that, but understanding it's not a personal failing on your part. Although, like you said, there might be parts of you that are making that worse, exacerbating that problem, but there's so many things that are happening outside of you as well. Yeah. I just want people to have control, right? Like we always start a lot of our, a lot of the presentations I do to like cold audiences are about the first question I ask is always, do you have control of all your decisions? And everybody's like, yeah, I'm so in control of my life. And I'm like, okay, let's test the theory. And then I go through and ask them all these different questions. And eventually we end up with like, did you decide to be tired? Right. And everybody's like, oh my God, no, I did not decide to be tired. I'm like, wait, wait, if you had kids, you decided to be tired. You just didn't know it. Like that is an outcome of a decision that you made that you're now paying the consequences for that you can't just pretend doesn't exist. Like you can't just be like, oh, let me compare myself to these people who don't have children and then hold myself accountable for the same amount of productivity that they have when they don't have any other responsibilities. That's not fair to you. You don't have control over those choices. So people not understanding what's in their control and what is not is one of the biggest keys to determining their productivity And that's why, again, we go to strength so much because the higher, like your activator, for instance, or your command, you have very little control over when those take over. Very little. And often what happens more is that your activator will move and you will not know it until after it's already done the thing that it's doing. And so knowing that that is a thing I can expect from myself all the time If I want to control my activator, I can't expect to control it before I make the choices. I have to control what environments I put the activator into so that I don't expect it to do something it's not capable of doing. I always want to control the choices as often as I can when I have instinctive or biologically subconscious choices I'm making that I don't actually have control over. Can you give a specific example just to bring that one on home? So let's just take activator as an example. So activator is constantly a magnetized half of a hook on action. So if I think of all of the action-related hooks that there are in my life, somebody walks into the room and is like, hey, let's go have lunch. Immediately, my activator's like, yeah, let's go do that. Like that feels good to take action on that. Or, hey, can you help me with this thing? Or the worst having my email open or my texts open or my Facebook open so that I'm constantly looking back and forth and trying to multitask between an open inbox and my work. So if I have this email inbox open and there's constantly new pings coming in, my activator is going to want to answer every single one of those emails as they come in. So in order to help my activator... I shut everything down. I turn the message off. I put my phone in the other room and I let myself focus when I have to focus. 
And then I put the activator into the best possible situation for helping the activator not get distracted. Because if I just leave my inbox open, I am asking my activator to be distracted by nature. And it's not fair then when I hold myself accountable for why couldn't I just ignore those emails? Have you ever ignored them before, bro? Like if you haven't, then why do you continue to expect yourself to do it? You're wasting your guilt on stuff that's not helpful. This is so good because I always think about, so I teach deep work, right? Which is basically 60 to 75 minutes of uninterrupted focus time. And I teach a literal step-by-step process. I just have to plug it, peakcoaching.co slash deep work state. I had to do it. It was a natural, (laughs) it was a natural fit here. And so one of the things I always think about though, is how often people are beating themselves up for not having done the work they knew was important And yet they never created the conditions or the container to make that inevitable. So, right, you're like, the example of the phone is perfect. You have your phone. We just talked about the the, like actual work that goes into making your phone addictive. So you've combined that and now you're mad at yourself because you're not doing your most important work. And yet you haven't set yourself up to make that possible. So I love this idea of being like, how are you going to make it possible for yourself to create the results that you want? So powerful. <laughs> and I'm like, my, my little activator brain, I'll just give an example too, is so the one way that I do activation is tons of content creation. So my brain just now functions in content creation. It has for years. So I have an idea. I immediately put that into a digestible marketing format, always. And I can either let that kind of blindly take over and then I'll like have this idea and then I'll be like, great, send it out to your email list right now. And I'll go and then all of a sudden I'm down some total rabbit hole of content creation. I like to cut myself off. So I'm like, you can write it down. You can put it in your Evernote as one line, but you're not going to flash out the entire email and you're not going to send it out, but you're going to have it there for when you're ready to come back to it. And so it's like, I get that. I get that little hit of satisfaction that I'm like, it's there. My thought is the best ideas always resurface. And then I get to pull my attention back to what I'm actually wanting to work on. Yeah. And that's a very, like your strategic command is working really well with your activator in terms of like an activator without that limiter really struggles to form internal motivation to do that. And we see a lot of activators are externally motivated. So then what happens is they will just do all of that activating and then look back and be like, I feel so guilty that I went down this rabbit hole. And they're not aware that like an awful lot of us need external motivation to get something done, which is why, again, like I'm such a huge fan of coaching programs that go, that do like, cohorts of people that we don't have any of this, but like external programs that do cohorts of people that are all sort of focused in the same direction, because so many entrepreneurs need the focus. They cannot manufacture it for themselves. Then they feel guilty that they can't manufacture it for themselves. Instead of just acknowledging, hey, I'm a person who needs some external motivation. Let me use this tool of like a coaching cohort or a program like a accountability program or a consistent therapist or coach who's going to hold me accountable. And we see that somehow as a failing. And again, I blame the productivity and industrial complex for almost everything, because I think it's a lot easier to just yell at people and be like, why aren't you more motivated? Why don't you want it more? And let's try to motivate you to want to get more instead of actually giving you the tools that you need to succeed. Because 90% plus of people are not going to be able to succeed the way that most productivity industrial complex people want them to. But if you could just resource them appropriately, they would be able to get done what they need to get done. They just can't manufacture it in the same way that the big guru can manufacture it because they're not that person. I'm really curious about this because one of the things that I do talk a lot about a lot in my program is intrinsic motivation and creating that. And I have had a lot of clients who report in, they're like, my ability to sell myself on what I think, like what I want to do and what I think is important has increased. How do you explain that with this idea of that some people are just externally motivated? So, because what we see is that when they leave those programs, they don't maintain it. 
Like, unless they have somehow done it long enough to be able to actually change pieces of themselves, they won't maintain it outside of that program. Because the, what will eventually happen is the system will come back with a vengeance. So like what we almost always see are the people who are externally motivated are like, I have to learn how to say no to everybody. And I can't do that. I can't manufacture that from inside myself. And so I'm increasing my capacity then to support myself with that external motivation while I'm in a program that I'm working through. And then you come back, all of a sudden a kid gets sick or a parent gets sick or they move across the country and they get out of the system that they had created for themselves and they can't manufacture it again because it wasn't actually the they didn't change from being internally to externally motivated. They created a system that helped them to keep that external motivation in close contact, I guess, or they manufactured it from like a consistent repetition, which again, not everybody can do. But yeah, we don't actually see people change because once they get out of those systems, they'll eventually return to that. It's like inertia. They'll eventually return to the system that produced it. Unless again, unless you can change the system for good, which some people can. Some people can, especially when people burn out. This is where we see it happen the most often, where like you'll flame and burn out and you'll have had all these expectations that you were struggling with before that now you are forced to change medically sometimes. And then it'll be like, okay, I no longer expect myself to be the person who writes first thing in the morning for four hours or the person who can say no to my kids and then also say no to everything else. I don't expect myself to be that person anymore. And I change my expectations. And the longer they work inside of that system, like adult behavioral change, 97% of people don't actually change. They only change for a time period. And the 3% of people who do have changed their system to such an extent, or again, maintained the external motivation to do it, that they do change. And I don't think it's a bad thing. And again, because of what I see in human behavior, it's like, it's not a bad thing to be externally motivated. You just have to learn how to manufacture the pressure for yourself and then create a system that continues to manufacture that pressure. It's really interesting. When I hear you say that, my first reaction is it sounds hopeless, right? When you say 3% of people change and 97% of people don't, but you don't seem hopeless. Why not? Oh, not at all. Not at all, because I do think that the 3% is, I don't know if this makes sense. Okay, so I'm going to say something that I rarely say out loud, even though I think it all the time. Most people are actually really happy with the system they have, but they think that they're not. So like most people believe that they want to be thinner or they want to be more successful or they want to be whatever. But when they really look at what they have to give up, in order to produce that behavior, they don't actually want to give that thing up. Like we hear people say this all the time, right? It's like, well, I want to lose weight and keep it off, but I want to also go back to my old eating habits after I lose the weight. And I'm like, as someone who struggled with weight my whole life, I'm like, let me tell you that does not produce change. But in order to physically change for a long period, we often have to change things about our life that we really like. So when we see someone come in and they're like, I want to release 12 books a year and I want to write super fast and I want to do this. I'm like, okay, do you recognize what it's going to take to make that happen? And we're like, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. And then they get into it and it's like, wait a second, this is not like my family doesn't like this. My systems that I have set up, my job does not like this. My body does not like this. So even though I have set myself up to make this big change, I now realize that I'm actually super comfortable in the system that I was in before. And I'm more comfortable changing my expectations of what success looks like and recognizing what will actually make me feel successful. Because this is the other question very few people ask, especially when we're looking at entrepreneurship as authors, right? We believe that making more money is going to make us feel more successful. And then many of us get into the like mid to high six figure range and we're like, oh no, I still don't feel successful. Like I need to make a million dollars to feel. I need to make two and 10 and 20. And I'm like, that mindset is what's producing you're not feeling successful. It's not the money, 
It's how you feel about yourself and how you feel about the work that you're doing. And that you can change at any time if you do the work to change it, right? But what you can't do is force yourself to feel successful if you're not willing to change any of your expectations about what that would look like. And again, some people have to feel it first to recognize, I don't actually want to change that bad. I prefer comfort more than I prefer discomfort. And so if I'm going to be comfortable all the time and only do what feels good for me, then this is the life that I'm going to build for myself. And so what we try to do instead is push on those comfort edges a little bit instead of... Because again, like I use the weight because it's easy. So those of you who want to lose weight, if I told you what you had to do to lose weight was never eat sugar again, never eat flour again, would you be willing to do that? Would it be worth it? Is the success of your goal weight worth never eating sugar and flour again? And most people would say, nope, that is not worth it. And I would say, then that's the right answer for you. Like then you need to work on being as healthy as you can in the body that you have and not worry about trying to hit some some unsustainable place for you that you don't even want to be in. You don't want that life. And that to me is a really big deal about the adult behavioral change. It's that people don't actually want the life that will create the different behaviors that will make them quote unquote, feel more successful. They actually really like the life that they have. They just don't want to feel like they're somehow failing in the life that they have. So if we can help them see that, and again, like I use writers as the example, if I can help people see that you don't have to make $2 million a year to feel successful or happy, you don't have to write 12 books a year in order to have fans that love your work and that grow every year. You don't have to settle for like a lower amount of family time just because other people make that choice. That does not have to be your life. You can choose to build whatever life you want. But the adult behavioral change statistics don't depress me because I think that most people would be really unhappy in the life that would produce this thing that they're looking at. They would not want the life of most millionaires on the way to the millionaire status. They want the life the millionaires have after they get there, but you can't have one without the other unless you win the lottery. And in that case, keep doing what you're doing, buy lottery tickets. But the life on the way to a millionaire life is extremely painful and it's very uncomfortable and it's very fun for people who want there, but it's not fun for everybody. This is so powerful. I want to give two client examples because this is, I tell my clients all the time, I'm like, if you leave here and none of your habits have changed and you're no more productive, but you like yourself more, done. Yes. Like a million percent, yes. Because it's mindset. All it is is mindset. So I'm like, I'm like, it's all bullshit. I'm like, the projects are all bullshit. I'm like, just so you know, it's all crap. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm half joking. I'm like, the projects are extraordinary. Like, it is so fun to create extraordinary projects. They're amazing. And also they mean absolutely nothing because they're all just a mechanism to make you like yourself more. That's it. And if you're doing projects and you're liking yourself less, you're doing it wrong. So I have a client who I had offered a one-on-one call because he was struggling in my program. And so we got on a call and he kind of said like in a jokingly but exasperated way, he was like, maybe I just need to expect myself to do way less and just give up my expectations and just like work for like two hours a day and then just be done and just like not expect myself to do all the other crap. And I was like, 100%, that's what you should do. I was like, you're not doing anything else in the additional six hours per day that you're stressing out. It's not like you're getting more work done. You're feeling awful. And it's all because of the expectations you have of yourself. I was like, doesn't that seem like a dream life? Spend two hours a day, probably do more work than you're doing right now and actually like yourself. And so he, cause he was like, you know, I could scale my business. And I'm like, for what, to your point, for what? So you make more money and you hate your life still? Why? Or hate your life more right? Because you work even harder and you do less of the stuff that you want to get when you get there. It's not worth it. I had a moment like that. So I had taken myself, I was living in Mexico. I took myself to this like beautiful colonial town and I was staying in this gorgeous like hotel. It's called like a palace. Like that was the name in Spanish. And I had a moment where I was like, I was in the shower and I was like, why am I in such a rush to get to my goal? And my answer was like, 
I'm in a rush because I want free time. I want downtime that money affords. And I had this moment, I might cry, where I was like, you fucking idiot. You're in a palace in a colonial town in Mexico, like having multiple weeks off. This is it. You're not seeing the very life that you say you want. And you're living it in this exact moment and you're completely overlooking it. I see this with my clients all the time. They're like, I want family time. And I'm like, you have it. You just spend it thinking about your to-do list. You already have it. And some of it is because we think we should, right? And this is why I'm always like, and I know a lot of people are into this, like questioning the should stuff, right? Like I'm glad that we're doing that now. But anytime I hear someone where they're like, I'm not having what I want, I always want to talk about that. Like I'm not getting what I want. And I'm like, tell me what it is that you think you want in that situation. Because so often what they think they want, they don't really want. Like I want to be able to write 12 books a year. And I'm like, oh, great. So you literally want to write every day of your life all day long. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. And I'm like, right. That's why you're not doing it though. Because you don't actually want that life. Like you believe that you do because someone has told you that that's the way to get what you want. But there are other ways to get what you want. Other ways. There's always other ways. And that's the ideation, right? Like you have to believe that there's other ways possible. Because if you don't, you will always be locked onto this one goal and just not able to see anything else. And then you'll be losing whatever it is in the moment that you actually do want. And again, so many of the, of the people that I coach, because we coach, you know, of all genders, but like we coach a lot of parents, we coach a lot of grandparents. And there is this feeling of like, I am being a bad business owner if I would rather not miss my kid's basketball game, or if I would rather go to the recital or go to Disneyland instead of creating a whole new product for my clients, for my um, readers. But that's not true. No one is forcing you to have that, that alignment of what you want. And most of the time, if you are that miserable, you have to look at the misery. That's not a good sign. Like the misery is not a good sign. And people just don't want to hear it because they're like, oh no, I need to make all this money. And I'm like, no, we need to be safe and sane and healthy. And this is not the way to do that. Like you have to build sustainable businesses and sustainable means it can't take more of your energy pennies than it puts in the bank. Because if it does, it's eventually going to burn you out and or kill you. And we cannot build these unsustainable businesses because somebody on a stage once told us that we should all be whatever, millionaires or whatever, right? Like, mm, no, so many of us are going to be so much happier building different lives than what the productivity industrial complex has told us that we should want to build. I get a little preachy about this stuff. Oh, this is good. I knew we were going to rant, but I mean, let's go. Okay. So I want to give another super quick example of a client. And then I have a thing that I I don't think we actually disagree on, but we'll see if we do. (laughs) So cliffhanger. But this story with my client, I think is another really good example of exactly what you're talking about. If I had a client who came to two rounds of my program and the first round, she didn't, she made a project plan and didn't finish it. And the second round, she made a project plan and didn't finish it. And I'm like, my program is called Half Finished to Done. It's about finishing projects. She walked out of there on the last call of the last of 16 calls being like, I don't give a crap about ambitious projects. I just don't. She's like, I have applied these tools in all the other areas of my life. She's like, I have less on my calendar, right? I don't do as many things I don't want to do. I'm better at handling my emotions. Like when I am working, I'm creating better work product and my day-to-day tasks, all these other benefits. And she's like, I don't care about ambitious projects. I thought that was the biggest win ever. And I was thinking how easy it would have been for her to walk out of there and been like, well, it was a failure. I didn't finish two projects. And I'm like, you got the ultimate clarity on what's important to you. You got to drop the expectations. And also you got all these other wins along the way. Like that is just... What a success story that doesn't look like one on the surface. (laughs) No, huge success. Because honestly, not everybody is ambitious. And I know to some of us who are very ambitious, that sounds like blasphemy. But it is most people are not ambitious in that way. And that's actually a good thing because the work that they do then is different. Like they provide work that just has a different energetic. 
right? And I think that we need all of that work in the world. If we're going to be a whole and functioning world, we need everyone who is not ambitious to feel like it's okay to be that way. And any way you learn that is a good way to learn it. Right. And like, even if you've paid money and you've invested time, even if that's the lesson, I'm like, I'm like, it's probably pain that you've been holding on to for decades and you learned it in 16 weeks worth it. Okay. So here's my thought. And I would be super curious because again, I don't think you're necessarily going to disagree, but I'd be curious if you do. As you're talking, one of the things that's occurring to me is I want to be very careful with this idea of like success has to be painful, that it won't ultimately be enjoyable and worth it. Because one of the things I think about is like, I'm constantly working on this in my business is like, what if it can be fun? What if it can be enjoyable? And like this podcast is a perfect example. The first time I podcasted, it was hard and overwhelming and daunting and I didn't like it. And now it is the biggest joy ever because I've changed my mindset. And so I want to be clear, like you can implement habit change. Like I think about just my deep work guide as an example. I'm like, you can just follow these prompts and you can do more focused work in shorter chunks and get work done and have your day-to-day experience of your business be less miserable and have the success you want. Is there any part of that you disagree with? I mean, I was with you until you said you can just follow the deep work guide and then you'll be happier. I don't actually see that that's true for all people. But again, it's I still don't think that it's worth self-selecting out. Because sometimes we do just need to do the hard thing at the beginning so we can get to the better part at the end. And let me actually also caveat this with, there's a reason why not every coach coaches the same way. Because there's the ideation coach, right? Like we have an ideation coach on our staff. He's a number one ideation. He hates it when I talk about, like there are just people who can't do stuff. There are just people who are not capable of things. Because he's always like, Nope, you got to open your mind. You got to believe it's possible. And I'm always like, right, that's how you feel, right? But as an individualization, here's the truth about people. And they are going to prove this out because this is just how people are. It's not, a, it's not a bad thing about them. There are people for whom the work will always be hard. And it is not a bad thing that the work is hard. We just want to manage how we do it then. But there's a reason why we still need the high ideation coaches or the high positivity or high futuristic coaches who are going to be like, just change your brain, just change your mindset, just do the thing, just do the thing. Because there's people like me who, if they fail at it, I've got them. Like I'll catch them and they'll be fine. But what I don't want to do is to have high ideation, futuristic positivity coaches coaching like me, right? Because if you were to lose that ideation thing of like, I believe that everyone that's possible for everyone to change. I believe there's a solution to every problem, et cetera. You wouldn't be you anymore. So like you wouldn't be fulfilling that role that you have in the industry. And I do think that's important. So what I believe to be true about it, because again, like I'm so much more of like a data, like I want to look at the data and see what the data proves out person. I'm looking at the outcomes of programs and seeing just 100% of programs, ours included, no program solves 100% of people. But this is one of the things we talk about when we met. It's like, but self-selecting the right people for you is part of the beauty of having a really clear idea of what you provide for people. Like if you're always going to be the person who, no matter what, believes that it's possible for people to change everything about everything about them, then that's who you are. And you don't have to be different than who you are, I guess is what I'm saying. But in terms of statistics, yeah, there are people that that just won't work for. No matter how much they try to change the way they think, that's just not going to work for them. But I don't need for you to believe that, right? (laughs) Right. Because like, you should not be doing anything different than what you're doing in the same way that I shouldn't do anything different than what I'm doing. Because the people who don't respond to what I do they need to go somewhere else. Like they need to find a person who they resonate with. And the same for each one of us who's in the coaching pantheon, right? Like everybody needs the right person for them. And so when people come to me and I'll use the deep work as an example, because that book made a fire path through the author community when it came out. And there were so many people who were really aligned with that type of work that were not doing it. 
huge percentage of people who should be doing that type of work. It's their best work. And they weren't able to do it because they had never created a life for themselves. Or like you said, they don't know the process, right? So the people for whom that worked transformed their life completely. And we watched it happen, right? We're like, oh, wow, that's super cool. And then we would coach the people who got burned by that trend and were not able to make that work. And then when I would coach them and they'd be like, why isn't this working for me? Why can't I force myself to do this? And I'm like, you're not a tunneler. You're a bumblebee. You need to do bumblebee stuff. You need to set up your life a way that functions the best for this. And then we just set you up with a different thing and then you're fine. But I don't think that invalidates any of the power that that book had in terms of like what it did for the people whose lives it changed. Nothing else would have done that. So my connectedness, I'm a huge fan of like, you have to find the thing that's the right fit for you if you want to get where you want to go. Because if you don't, you will keep failing and failing and failing. And, And by your definition of success, failing, maybe not by everybody's, but that piece of I just don't think it's possible for this to not work for everyone. If you don't fully believe that, you won't serve your clients well. They need you to believe that. That's so powerful because I'm like, yeah, I think I always tell my clients, I'm like, imagine if you come to me and you're like, here's a limit. I'm like, I'd be the world's worst coach if I just agreed with every limit you have. And I'm like, but the work I do is I'm like, we want to work around it, right? There's some limits we are going to accommodate. Like, and this is where I, like my bare minimum method. I'm like, when you get sick, I'm not going to tell you like, go power through, like take care of yourself when you're sick. We're also going to look at how do you anticipate that? How do you mitigate that? How do you get sick less often? We're going to look at all the different angles and then figure out how, what do you need to accommodate? What do you need to stop accommodating so much? And like, how do you want to work with that? And so I think, yeah, leaving the space for clients where they can come and be like, it's not working. And my first question is always, did you actually do it? And so a huge percentage of time, someone will be like, nope. Like I just had another client who was like, she was like, oh yeah, I just skip over all the prompts. And I'm like, well, maybe that's why it's not working. And so when she started following the prompts as I laid them out, she's like, oh, this is fantastic. But you're right. I'm like, there's got to be plenty of people out there who are like, I tried it. I came back, I troubleshooted and it's still not working. And and then that's my job too, to be like, great, what next? It is genuinely hard. And this is more just for those of you who are strategic, who are listening, but also for you, who is very, very dominant strategic. It is very, very hard to think like people who do not have high strategic. So the more you you are self-selecting out a huge number of people out of your program just by being the person who is high strategic. So you're much more likely to align yourself to clients who have some capacity to be able to think in that way. And the ones who don't are like, somebody referred you and you don't belong here and you'll eventually fail out and be fine. It's just, this is not your place. But I do think that the handy thing about strengths is when people really don't resonate they will not show up for it. And that is both good and bad in terms of sometimes they probably should show up for it. But it's good in terms of, I'm not a person who believes that every single person needs to customize their business the way that we do. Because frankly, most people can't. Like They're not able to see the nuance of the personality and to be able to customize absolutely every single piece of a process for someone because almost all experts are, here's my system that I know really well and I know how to help everyone do my system well. And I think that's good. Like The piece that I'm trying to create, I think, in the industry, in in our writing industry, because it's exactly the same, is you have to be a better decision maker about when something isn't for you. You have to stop holding yourself accountable to other people's rules and move on. Because the best possible thing for every expert in the industry is really aligned people who are in the right programs and who are expecting the right things of themselves and not trying to make something work that's just never going to work for them. And so the best decision, the better decision maker I can be as a client of the productivity industrial complex, the better client I will be. And then the more easy of a business owning coach or teacher or helper podcaster that I can be because I'm primarily getting people who are for me. And it's one of the reasons when we do the talk about craftsmanship, 
It's one of the reasons that I'm such a huge fan of crafting a very specific product for people to work for 100% of people who are attracted to it is because if you can get the right people in the door, you don't even have to advertise. I don't advertise. I don't market. I don't do any of that stuff because I worked so hard to make the product be as effective as possible for everyone that it could work for, that it then sells itself. And I think that level of... And again, I know not everyone's going to resonate with that, which is fine. They don't have to. But for those of you who need to hear this, like I spent years and years developing in R&D so that I would be able to get a very curated set of people who would come to me. And I think that has made me a more effective business owner and a more effective coach because I'm not casting my net so wide that I'm getting like direct mail level cold call interest, right? It's like, it's a much more curated, warm audience by that point. And so I feel like we can spend more of our time and resources on the clients then instead of on the market. I feel like you just did a a trailer for the future episode about craftsmanship (laughs) that we meant to record today. For the next episode. Coming yes. soon to a, to a podcast near you. Yes. So two things. One is you said this so quickly, but in everything you just said, I wrote this down. You'll fail out and you'll be fine. And you said it as if that's like, yeah, you'll just fail and then you'll be fine. I love that attitude. I think so many people go through a program, they feel like they failed, and then they're so scarred for so long, which is okay. Like that's okay to have that feeling of like, I did it wrong and process through all those emotions. But I love the attitude too of being like, I feel that one. What's the next one? Let's go. Right. I do think that that is a, I hesitate to ever say like, there's one thing all successful people have in common. But I do, I really struggle to think of people who are super successful, who aren't super comfortable with failure. Because if you aren't comfortable with failure, it's really hard to get enough shots on goal to hit that level of success. And learning how to be okay with failure is painful. And also, if I had to say, like, what's the one thing that I see in almost everyone who has success? It definitely is. I'm okay with failure because failure teaches me and then I move on from it and do things differently. But I never invest so much expectation in only one thing. If I don't succeed at this one thing, then I will never succeed at anything again. And I would be like, well, that's definitely not true. Like, we definitely need to question that premise because I've never, ever seen anyone who was successful in only one thing and never did anything else ever and never failed and never, you know what I mean? Like, I've just never seen it. So maybe you're the first unicorn. Who knows? But chances are good you should get super comfortable with failure really quick. It's so funny. I'm working on something I'm calling the failure cycle. It's about like how to process through failure. And so it's like, it's in development right now. So I'll do a podcast episode on that. But one of the things that I think about is I hear a lot of people when they quote unquote fail, which is very subjective, then they think they should be okay with it. Like they should just automatically be like, okay, yay. I'm like, no, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying be hunky-dory and rainbows and butterflies about the failure. You're allowed to be devastated. You're allowed to crawl in bed and cry for a day. And then what? It's the and then what? Like I always I tell this example. I'm like, this is the lowest point of my professional career to, the, to date. We'll see if I surpass this. I had a client call me a bad coach in front of 10 other clients. And I'm like, yep, that was rock bottom. And I mean... I was I didn't pretend to be okay with that. It was awful. It was devastating. It was like the words were designed to hurt and they fucking did. And then I was like, how is that true? How was I a bad coach? How was I a good coach? How is he wrong? And then just going through, it's like the aftermath of that after I had processed through the emotions, which took way longer than I think they should have, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. So <laughs> And yeah. took as long as they had to take at the moment, right? It'll be shorter next time. Exactly, exactly, for sure. Because now I have clients to tell me things and I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> and it's not like in a dismissive way. I'm just like, that's fine. Like I'm not, I'm so much less flustered by it now. So you'll see that if you're ever mad at me as a client, I'm like, okay, what do you want to do about this? <laughs> okay, thank you so freaking much. I am so excited to leave 
everyone with the cliffhanger of the craftsmanship conversation because we're going to have that as well. It's going to be spectacular. But this was a much needed episode. I want to send like every single person who's either considering joining my program or joined it. I want to send them here to this episode because I just think this is a really important perspective for everybody to have. So thank you for sharing your expertise. This is awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I always love talking to other strategics who are in this space because I feel like we're on the same wavelength. So this was a lot of fun. And also, I still think the craftsmanship conversation is going to be better. Like I really do because we've had a lot of it already, right? Like if you like this, you are just like, just wait. It's going to get even better than this. (laughs) You're going to hear both of us rant and it's going to be so much fun. It's going to be so great. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Half Finished to Done podcast. If you're ready to become a self-assured repeat project finisher, the best place to work with me is in my eight-week group coaching program, Half Finished to Done Live. You'll leave our time together with one finished project and the skills you need to finish any project, personal or business, in the future. Just head to peakcoaching.co slash HFD live for your next step. Can't wait to work with you.